Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, November the 18th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics wrap-up of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linnan. With me today from our politics team are Pat Leahy and Cormac McQuinn. Good day to you both. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Pat, it's sort of a mixed bag of stories this week, including a number of stories that I think that people might not think of as immediately political, but I think are political. I was reading Justine McCarthy's excellent opinion piece in the Irish Times today, Friday, and it brought together a few threads which have uh, which have been there throughout the week, I think, following the death of, of Vicky Phelan, a lot of reflection on her work and her bravery and the, the impact she had on Irish society. And Justine draws a thread between that and another big story which has been happening over the over the past week, which are revelations of abuse at Blackrock College in Dublin. Do you see a connection between those two things? Because I, I, I think there is one. Yeah, I do actually, you know, aside from the injustices perpetrated by institutions on individuals and the massive power differential between the two sides in this, the first thing I draw from them, I suppose, is you know, how slow institutions, including government, are to respond to events that clearly demand changes that discommode or have the potential to discommode, you know, the real power centres in Irish society. You know, whether that be the medical profession, the legal profession, the civil service, the semi-states, the more comfortable parts of the wider uh, public service. I think they probably used to include religious orders. I'm, I'm not so sure if it does uh, so much anymore. And the extent to which individuals have to go before you know, they can get these institutions to uh, respond or before they can get government, part of whose job is to vindicate the rights of its citizens, to respond on their behalf So, uh, you know, while on the face of it, the two instances are quite different, you know, in the case of Blackrock College, and as we are now learning probably many other schools as well, and we might talk about that aspect of it uh, in a few minutes, but, you know, there were criminal acts perpetrated on children. In the case of uh, Vicky Phelan, there was, uh, I suppose, negligence on, uh, on the part of a a service that was provided uh, by the state, but I don't think people have suggested there was criminal intent uh, or anything like that, which which there clearly was in the case of the child sex abuse in in, in Blackrock and and elsewhere. But you know, I think Justine is I think is right. It's a really good piece uh, today in which she draws together uh, those those threads. I also saw uh, your own piece about it, which is running um, online at the moment, Hugh, which I thought was uh, which I thought was excellent. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I should say I went to Willow Park, which is part of the Blackrock College complex. It was the junior school. So I knew some of the people who were involved, um, including some of the abusers. And it has caused me to think a little bit about the sort of political implications of it, Cormac, because the kind of question that I've been asking myself is, 
you know, it's it's a quarter of a century now or more, actually, since the Christian Brothers, for example, started to be held to account. Now, many people might feel that they were never properly held to account, but they were held to account in the court of public opinion and at various inquiries over, over the years. And it's taken so much longer for this institution and, as Pat says, a number of other schools which tend to be in the private, fee-paying, more privileged end of the Irish education system. And the fact that that's happened um, says something to me about the way that power works in Ireland. Sure, and I mean, it, to, to, to look at the political side of it, it, it is, it's created a, a dilemma for the government now to decide what kind of inquiry, and it's accepted that there will be one, will take place into what happened or what's alleged to have happened at Blackrock College and then possibly other fee-paying schools run by religious orders as well. And to go back to the to the similarities between the cervical cancer uh, issue and, and, and this abuse thing, even on a superficial level, the government is kind of looking at the, the non-statutory inquiry into the cervical cancer controversy and scandal carried out by Dr. Gabriel Scali as a potential model for, for looking into the allegations at, at Blackrock College. But these things are, they can be very long drawn out. There's, there's great potential to upset victims and survivors, which I suppose one of the other things the government has been saying is that they will be talking to victims and survivors, making sure it's a victim-led approach to things. They'll also be talking to opposition parties next week. But it is, it's a dilemma in how to, how to look into this. And there's, the Taoiseach was saying there's no timescale yet, even for, for drawing up the terms of reference uh, for, for an inquiry. So we'll see how that plays out over the, the coming probably months. I suppose because one of the things, Pat, is that because it has taken so long for this to come to light, I mean, there were various cases cases over the years which were settled more or less in private, as, as far as we can make out. Everybody's a lot older. Most of the, the people who have come out to, to tell their stories over the last week or so are, you know, into their 60s, approaching retirement age. The vast majority of the, uh, of the abusers are dead. And so justice has been delayed and therefore denied. Yeah, and there are clearly practical difficulties even in inquiring into or bringing to trial people who are of very advanced years. That is not necessarily uh, a reason not to do it if there, if a Garda investigation uh, produces prosecutable evidence. Um, but you've got to think that a Garda, Garda investigations, given the state of some of the witnesses, will be very difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons why the demands for an inquiry, some sort of inquiry, will continue and will probably prove irresistible to government. The dilemma for government is it's just not clear what sort of an inquiry you could set up into this with a reasonable expectation that it would conclude its work over a not infinite timescale because you can't just have an inquiry into Blackrock College. We've, you know, through the reporting uh, that we've seen this week, including by Jack Power about Castleknock College, you've seen that, you know, there are lots of other places uh, that that this sort of abuse may have taken place. So you you can't exclude those sort of schools from it. But what that means, of course, is that you are opening up, you know, there's 4,000 schools uh, in the country in which in the vast majority of which what we would now regard as some sort of physical abuse uh, took took place because that was how, and that's altogether separate from the question of sexual abuse, but that's how education was delivered for an awful lot of 
people by uh, a not inconsiderable number of, of, of teachers in the days before corporal punishment was banned and, and even in some cases after that. So just following some conversations I've had with people in and around government about this, this is one of the questions that they're currently trying to wrestle with, which is how do you have an inquiry that isn't an open-ended inquiry into 4,000, potentially 4,000 schools uh, about events that may have taken place in some cases several uh, several decades ago? At the same time, some sort of process or inquiry is, I think, uh, going to be going to be needed. I'm not sure what the answer to those questions are, and I don't think anybody in, uh, within government has the answers at this point either. Pat, can I just follow up on that and, and just ask you and go back to Justine's um, article for a moment, because I think it's important to say that you know she draws a, a connecting line between what we now know happened in the first 50 years of the Irish state in particular, the confessional Catholic Irish state, and the kind of treatment of, of people and the, the misuse of power and then these more recent, uh, these more recent incidents, which which Vicky Phelan um, was faced in of prevarication, procrastination, concealment, sometimes arrogance and sometimes misogyny. People talk an awful lot when they talk about schools about an ethos. Is there a, a specifically kind of an Irish ethos, or is that beating ourselves up too much? You know, I'm not. I'm not sure there is. I think there's no doubt that the Irish state it took on a particular character that was more Catholic than other places. Uh, as, as, uh, as Derek Scally puts it in the title of his book, The Best, best Catholics uh, in the World. Um, but institutional uh, abuse, uh, especially involving but not limited to uh, the Catholic Church, took place all over, uh, all over the world. And we sometimes forget that. A friend of mine calls it this myth of Irish exceptionalism. There's no doubt that it has a, there is a particular Irish character to, to some of it. And those in religious, those institutions, those power centres in Irish society, whether it be the medical profession or the Holy Ghost Fathers, were especially powerful here um, in a way that has echoes in other places. I mean, I'm not, I guess, qualified you know, to speak about how, you know, whether they were more or less powerful in 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 other places, but certainly you see the same sort of patterns of denial and institutions protecting themselves at the expense of individual victims of violence perpetrated by their members, uh, you know, most egregiously in religious, uh, you know, in, in, in sex abuse in religious run institutions, but not limited, uh, not limited to that. So I'm not, there is a, there is an Irish character, was it so much worse here than it was in in many other places. Maybe it persisted uh, for longer, and maybe to some degree, it still uh, it still persists today. Because you know we see in the structure of Irish society that the enduring power of those power centres, like the legal profession, the medical profession, still endures. The civil service, uh, to some degree, it's a trivial example, but. Uh, by comparison to all this, it's a trivial example. But, you know, when the Troika arrived amongst the many measures that it imposed on uh, on the government was, you know, that there was to be uh, a charge for civil servants parking uh, in, in Dublin uh, never happened. It demanded reform of the legal profession. 
never happened. Lots of other things the government couldn't resist the Troika from doing, including those brutal few years of austerity in, uh, in, in public spending, which disadvantaged so many people who were already themselves uh, disadvantaged. But in some respects, not even the Troika could impose change uh, on, on the legal profession or on, on civil servants' parking, which, as I say, is, of course, you know, a trivial... Uh, a trivial matter compared to what we're talking about, but is indicative of the enduring power of some of these power centres and institutions in Irish society. And the way they have of working, I think I think it's fair to say. Anyway, we will undoubtedly be coming back to some of these, these questions because they aren't going anywhere. And stick with us. We'll be right back with Cormac and Pat after the break. Back more on the political nitty-gritty of, of, of the day, Cormac. It's sort of Ardesh season and Fine Gael are coming up. Yeah, it never ceases to annoy me how political parties like to take up Saturdays of, of political correspondence. And, uh, you know, I'm sure their their members are enthusiastic about attending, but uh, we will be there in force over the next couple of days anyway, this evening and tomorrow. Your enthusiasm is palpable, <laughs> Cormac. Yeah, yeah, we, it, it should be said that Cormac and I have drawn the short straws and we'll be down in, uh, uh, we'll be down in Athlone with the, uh, with Fine Gaelers tomorrow. But, uh, but I, I would think that uh, Fine Gael be relatively buoyant going into tomorrow's uh, big meeting, uh, they have uh, increased their support in the polls up four points in the, in the last uh, Irish Times Ipsos poll. And of course, Leo Varadkar's own personal uh, rating went up eight points, albeit he's still He's still on 44, one point behind Michal Martin and, and Mary Lou MacDonald. But we're a month away from the, the big historic uh, transition to power. Leo Varadkar will, will be back in the Taoiseach's office. Um, you know, th- th- things are, are looking relatively bright for Fine Gael, I, I would say. Uh, that's not to say that the, the government has not been without its, its tensions in recent times. I mean, Fine Gael has, has been increasingly vocal in the area of housing, which, of course, is, is the, the Fianna Fáil brief at the moment. And, uh, and that, is, that has put some noses out of joint in Fianna Fall, you know, there's the there's you know, going to be some issues with the Green Party and the the ratification of the the Canada trade deal CETA, which Fine Gael are very very much in support of, but uh, many in the Greens have have reservations about, you know. So there, it's going to be a rocky road ahead, and that's going to that's going to increase as we come closer to elections and the parties seek to to redefine themselves. There was a a hint, uh, and you know, redefine themselves and and distinguish themselves from the other coalition partners. There was a hint from Leo Varadkar there last week that there might be some cooperation between between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, in some constituencies, which was rapidly shot down by by many people in Fianna Fáil up to and including the Taoiseach who poured cold water on it. So you know, there there are issues that that will arise in time ahead, but but I think Fine Gael will be fairly positive going into. This weekend, and so Leo Varadkar has a long-standing reputation for sort of mischief making with some of these comments. Pat, is that what that uh, comment about some constituency cooperation between the two parties was? Ah, well, you know, you could read it, Hugh, as a signal of his determination to work uh, collaboratively with uh, uh, with Fianna Fáil in uh, when he takes over as uh, as uh, as Taoiseach. and he's been effusive in his praise of uh, Michal Martin in, uh, in recent weeks, saying how much he's learned from observing him uh, as, uh, as Taoiseach. So, you know, you, you could take it in that way or you could, take it, uh, uh, you, you could take it another way, which is to acknowledge that um, I don't think his comments were likely to be particularly welcomed in, uh, in, in Fianna Fáil. A Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael transfer pact, I think, is not going to happen. Fianna Fáil particularly keen, will be keen to maintain its independence. And really, it's the argument that, that, that you don't have to make 
Far uh, at, at at the next election, if Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gaelers are are happy, they will uh, happy with the way the government is going. They will transfer to each other. But if you tell them to do it, you might get the hackles up, especially especially amongst their traditional voters who have uh, been brought up never to uh, never to give the other the other side a scratch. I think there is um, just going into that. I spoke to. A load of Fine Gaelers over the course of uh, of the week for uh, a, a piece which will run online later today and in the paper in the morning uh, in advance of the Ordesh. And uh, many of them I had spoken to several months ago for a piece which painted a very, but reported on a, a very bleak picture in Fine Gael uh, at, uh, at the time. If you look back to the start of the summer and the party was in a much different place kind of psychologically at that point. They were still worried uh, about the ongoing Garda investigation into Leo Varadkar, or rather Garda investigation had been concluded at that part and the file rested with the, uh, with the DPP and there was the possibility of a prosecution um, uh, for relating to the, the, the leaking of a, a document when he was uh, Taoiseach. And uh, and there was also the party was taking a bit of a battering uh, in in the polls. Since then, um, DPP has, of course, said that there will be no prosecution of Leo Varadkar. Standards and Public Office Commission similarly exonerated him uh, re- from, on a complaint relating to the same issue recently. Party has taken a bit of an uptick uh, in the polls and there was a very well-received budget, which, of course, gave away uh, 11 billion uh, 11 billion euros or an answer giveaway of 11 billion euros. So the mood is kind of transformed, I find, amongst uh, amongst Fine Gaelers. Many of them ascribe that to the uh, uh, to the decisions not to, to prosecute uh, Leo Varadkar. I think that's a sign, I'm not sure that's right, but um, I, I, I think it's more got to do with the budget, to be honest. But it's a sign of how central Varadkar is to Fine Gael's political uh, ambitions, and of course, the prospect of him moving into the Taoiseach's office is a couple uh, in a couple of weeks has really put uh, a spring in their step. I wonder if they aren't being slightly over optimistic about things. I think that you know, if I'm right, that much like that the turnaround in the government's fortunes to the extent that there is one, and I think it's overstated in both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the extent to which uh, which there has been a turnaround. It's only one round of polls that there's been, uh, you know, that has been a bit more favourable to the government. And, you know, I think they should wait a little longer for a, a new trend, if that's what it is, to, to assert itself. But a lot of that uptick, I think, is related to the budget and this massive giveaway, which we see continuing even this week. Simon Harris, uh, you know, announcing or, or signing, announcing that he was signing the order to give, I think it's nearly 700 euros to students in receipt of local authority grants. Heather Humphreys is out this morning announcing that the government will be assisting with the paying of electricity bills for parish halls and community centres and so forth. So there's this great tidal wave of money that was announced in the budget is gradually being rolled out. But that's not going to go on for Ever. And when the government gets into next year, particularly with a slowing economy and the wobbles in the tech industry whose revenues underpin the corporation tax boom that we're seeing at the moment, I think, you know, things, this, this government could end up making budgetary decisions that 
are an awful lot more difficult, or the next government rather, the Leo Varadkar-led government, could end up faced with budgetary decisions that are much more difficult than the ones that uh, the present government has, has had to make. And, uh, you know, I, I can foresee all sorts of political difficulties when that happens. So, Cormac, while I, while I do, of course, have some sympathy for yourself and Pat having to uh, leave the of your families on a Saturday and head down to Athlone. Uh, we, we love it, really. It is a very interesting political moment. It's unprecedented, really. Here's the Ardesh of one of our major parties being will be spoken to by its leader tomorrow night, who knows that he will become Taoiseach within the space of just uh, a mere a mere couple of weeks. And it strikes me this is a this is a key moment in the interesting political biography of Leo Varadkar because now. This is make or break time. There's no elections in the immediate future for the next year or so. Not none of the diary anyway. You can never, never say never. Um, so this is his chance to actually cement his position as a successful leader of his party, which I don't think is something that he's quite managed to achieve yet. Yeah, well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, in in, in if you look at Leo Varadkar's uh, election history as as leader, it, it hasn't been a great one. Uh, Fine Gael essentially lost the 2020 election, uh, general election. The 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 2019 local and European elections, you know, is probably his best uh, best results, which particularly in Europe anyway, where, where they returned several MEPs. But there hasn't been a particularly good record in terms of facing the electorate. And we we have, of course, the, the local and European elections come up in 2024. So he will want to put in a, a good showing in that uh, then heading up to the to the big one then the, fo- the following year the, the next general election um but uh, yeah I mean it'd be interesting to watch his his address tomorrow evening um to see to see what sort of hints he drops as to priorities he will have as Taoiseach. Uh, he often uses these kinds of speeches to to signal uh, plans for tax cuts or or anything you know will there be a resurrection of the the 30 percent tax rate idea that that uh, was looked into ahead of the budget this year but uh, was was decided against on this occasion anyway you know um is there going to be some sort of a radical move on housing that that he will announce these are the kind of things we'll be looking out for tomorrow night uh, to give it give some sense of of how the next two and a bit years are going to go. So, Pat, we'll uh, have a look, as we always do, um, at this time of the week at articles that have caught our attention in the Irish Times over the last seven days. What caught your eye? Yeah, the, the, the one I picked is, um, this piece is on page three of this morning's paper by Rona McGreevy about the um, executions of Republican prisoners uh uh, during the during the Civil War, and to be honest, it was um, an episode that uh, I, in Irish history that I wasn't really all that familiar with. But I've been reading uh, a bit about it uh, of late. Ron is a really good piece, and of course, he's done so much good work on the decade of commemorations uh, in uh, o- o- over the last couple of years. It's a picture of the Olympic boxer Michael Carruth, who's um, uh, who's who's. Great Uncle John Gaffney was one of the first Republican prisoners that was uh, executed by the Free State forces. And, uh, you know, it's noted in the piece that the, the, the Free State government at the time acted with a, a, a savagery that was, you know, on a par with anything that the British uh, had done uh, during the War of Independence. And whatever about that, it's certainly clear that it is, you know, left an embittered divide in Irish politics for, you know, generations afterwards. And that's reflected to a degree in Fianna Fáil, with the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael division, though it is often overlooked the extent to which de Valera was successful in appealing to people who had supported 
the treaty uh, in persuading them to vote for Fianna Fáil uh, afterwards, because after all, opposing the treaty was a minority uh, a minority position, whereas Fianna Fáil obviously became a party that 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 won majorities in the Dáil subsequently. So, you know, with that caveat having been entered, uh, I think you know the the extent to which bitterness over the civil war persisted throughout uh, Irish society for decades afterwards can hardly be uh, overestimated. And and anyway, it's it's just a it's it's an interesting piece this morning. I thought. No, it's very interesting. I agree completely. And, you know, it's been interesting to, to, to as the centenary of the, the, the start of those killings emerges this week to find out more about them. We all, we all generally knew about the more famous uh, people who were who were executed during the Civil War, like like Erskine Childers. But the vast majority of them, as Dermot Ferreter points out in today's Irish Times, were young and were uh, not from the most advantaged parts of society and were more or less forgotten by Irish history. So, uh, Cormac, what were you reading? Uh, I, my favourite story from, from the Irish Times this week was uh, Miriam Lord's piece on, on Thursday about how fear and panic gripped Leinster House as, as TDs and senders wondered if they had made uh, Russia's uh, travel ban list, uh, this, this list of 52 Irish politicians that, that can no longer travel to Moscow should they have intended to in the first place. Uh, that, was, uh, that was teased on Wednesday, uh, but not fully fully uh, revealed until yesterday. And what I liked about it was it, it did... Uh, it did give a sense of the the speculation that was that was going around the corridors of Leinster House on Wednesday of whether TDs were on on the list or not, but also it uh, predicted what happened yesterday evening when the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, did indeed start contacting uh, politicians to tell them that they could no longer uh, go on holidays to to Trans Siberian Railway or or one of those. Um, you know, it, it uh, they sure enough, backbenchers and senators were were taking to their their Twitter uh, you know accounts and and outlining how they'd be just gotten the call to say they'd been included on the list and and it's not going to stop me speaking out about uh, Russia's horrible crimes in Ukraine and um you know they all all of the rest of it so it it was uh, it was a good it you know it, it's a badge of honor in fairness it is a badge of honor to be on on that uh, on that that list but uh, it, it Miriam very uh, aptly uh, you know captured the the atmosphere uh, waiting for the names yeah, one one has to feel some sympathy for those TDs who wanted to be on the list and didn't make it. You know, I think they should really complain to the Russian ambassador who is still in situ, of course. Well, well there there are some uh, some kind of anomalies there. I mean, uh, the Count Corliss, Sean O'Friel is on the list, and he had travelled, of course, to uh, to Kiev fairly early on in in things uh, during the war. Uh, Mark Daly, the 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 Kahirlik of the Shannad, doesn't feature on the list. Uh, he was on that same trip to to Kiev. It's an appalling you know? oversight. Yeah, so it's uh, you know you, you would wonder how much thought went into to creating the list in the first place. You know, there's there's very few cabinet ministers on the list, other than the you know the those named by Russia the, on on Wednesday. So you know, it's it's it, there there's certainly a, a a case to be made that it is just it's propaganda and more about. About sowing divisions here than uh, than actually taking a serious sanction against political uh, pol- Irish politicians. Yeah, I think the Russians have disappointed us again. They really, they really have to do. You have to do better the next time around. Um, I'm going to choose my article. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to mention two articles. I, I have fond memories, um, Pat, of when your predecessor as political anti woke politics of the Republican Party, and in a way, Stephen, may perhaps for the first time was sort of agreeing with him in his in his article uh, today in the Irish Times, although I think he put a spin on it with which Finton would not have agreed. He was arguing, I think correctly, that Joe Biden has been underestimated as a politician and as an efficacious American president. 
But the comparison he drew was with our own Enda Kenny, which um, uh, will not have come as a surprise to anybody who's read Stephen's columns over the, over the last few years, but not a comparison I've seen drawn before, but basically saying that both were, both were highly underestimated politicians who had delivered above and beyond uh, the capabilities of supposedly much more talented politicians in the case of America, Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden in the case of Ireland. I think everybody. I think Enda Kenny, in, in Stephen's view, was probably Ireland's best ever Taoiseach. But I did want to use those to put a cap on our discussions of the US midterms. So the dust is pretty much settled on them now. We know what the result is. The the uh, the Democrats will retain the Senate. The Republicans will have a very slender uh, majority in the House. After those elections, um, Cormac, Received wisdom got reversed very fast because everybody didn't nobody expected those results, and it was interesting for me to observe the way that happened so quickly and how efficiently the media can forget everything that it predicted in the run up to election and explain everything that happened in the in in the light of what finally happened. And I'm a bit suspicious of the new received wisdom, which is that this was a deathly blow to Donald Trump, who announced his presidential candidacy for 2024 this week and that it's all over for Trump. And that's a consensus that seems to run right across from the New York Times, Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal and various other conservative outlets, including Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. Yeah, I mean, look, Trump's uh, initial candidacy was rubbish back in 2015 when he, when he first went and then he, he systematically toppled all of the other Republican candidates in, in various debates with his, with his, uh, his nicknames for all of them and, and uh, just uh, outright abuse and criticism. Uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, he's to be underestimated, I think, at our, at our peril. But at the moment, he's, he's in the doldrums somewhat, uh, certainly in the Republican establishment and, and certainly in the, the Murdoch press in the, in, in the US. Um, I mean, one, one, one piece that I particularly enjoyed during the week was the, the New York Post's uh, coverage of his, his announcement that he's going to run for president in 2024. There was a, a very small note on the, on the front page uh, saying Florida man makes an announcement uh, and then flagging a story on page 26, which described him as a, a Florida uh, retiree and an avid golfer um, who, who, was, who made the surprise <laughs> announcement that he's running for president. The very last line of the story uh, talks about how he, oh, he also served as, as the 45th president of the United States. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was a, it was a brutal takedown, you know, in every, you know, every line of it was, uh, was, was, uh, was, was unflinching in its, in its, uh, in mockery of, of uh, Donald Trump, who, who we know is, is quite a, a thin-skinned individual. And uh, you can be sure that he, he, he will not have appreciated that that coverage in in one of his hometown uh, newspapers. Oh, I think his favorite newspaper, actually, a, a newspaper that played a large part in his rise to uh, to international stardom. Yeah, but if it's one thing we know about Murdoch is that if it looks like that, if it looks like Trump is actually going to get back to the White House, you know that uh, Murdoch's papers will perform yet another U turn, and uh, will will get on board. For me, the um, the the results of the election, however, suggests that. I mean, I, I, I'm like you, Hugh. I'm not sure that this means Trump is finished or whatever. He still has an extraordinary hold over Republican grassroots and could well win the nomination uh, to be the Republican candidate in 2024. What I do think these results mean is that it's very hard to see how he wins that presidential election, whatever about being the Republican candidate. And I think what you'll see over the next 12 months is the Republican Party, the professional political machine doing everything it can to get Trump 
off the ticket. But they've tried to do that before and they've been unsuccessful. So uh, I, I, I actually, I think what the stage is set for is kind of a Republican civil war. And um, I, 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 I'm kind of looking forward to observing that from the outside. <laughs> me too, me too. We, we will leave it there, though. Thanks very much to, to Pat and Cormac for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back very soon, but until then, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs> 